Online shopping is uh, an interesting thing. Um, increasingly, uh, you know, you get the business reports at the end of the quarters, and especially this past year, you were finding out, you know, there are some uh, department stores that, while they may have done okay in some respects, they're having to close because online shopping is picking up as it is. It's certainly very convenient, right? I mean, but it can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. Um, last month, I sat down in front of my laptop and, and made a, a series of, of purchases, holiday-related. Didn't have to move, didn't have to go anywhere. Um, uh, several items were purchased in that, in that one sitting, which then meant that a few days later, a, a few boxes began to arrive. Actually, very few boxes because m multiple items were included in, in one box. And that's where the trouble almost started. Because as I was breaking down one of those boxes, I discovered that I had nearly thrown away one of those items. And the simple takeaway point in all of that, I guess, would be, you know, you don't want to confuse your trash with your treasures. Now, what it, why am I mentioning all that? And what does that have to do with, with where we're going here now? Um, well, we can make the same mistake with the treasure of the gospel and the trash of all competing views. We dare not do that. I want to take you now to Matthew chapter 9. We are getting back into our study in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 9, uh, if you're trying to find that, it's the uh, first of the gospels that we have. Uh, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. We're in Matthew 9, uh, pressing on uh, into this gospel, this historical record that uh, the Apostle Matthew gives us here. Um, Matthew 9, I'm really honing in on verses 14 through 17. We looked at, goodness gracious, what was that? I think the last Sunday in November, or no, that would have been first in Advent. So I don't know, somewhere somewhere mid-November we were, we were in here. So um, we had looked at last time verses uh, 9 through 13. I'm going to start back at verse 9, but we're really pressing into as far as taking a close look at verses 14 through 17, but starting back at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to return into this uh, study through Matthew's Gospel. Um, there is some stuff here, some, some 
puzzling imagery, uh, but certainly uh, we could. It is no stretch to to say that uh, your original hearers there that day uh, would have grasped this, would have understood. We pray that you'd help us to do the same, uh, but not just in sort of a historical curiosity sort of way, but in a way that uh, engages uh, with with where we are. Um, what they needed to hear, we need to hear. And uh, we pray that you would do that heart's work uh, in us now. Um, something deep, something profound, something transformative. Uh, we know really uh, there is um, nothing persuasive that I can say, uh, no argument that I could make that is so winsome and um, scintillating that's going to move anyone here. It's going to have to be by your Spirit's work in our midst, within our, our minds and hearts. We pray for uh, that miraculous intervention now. We ask in your name. Amen. Some of you may have seen uh, the news this past week, uh, radio signals that were detected from deep space. I don't know if you saw anything about that. Um, uh, it's not the first time that's been the case, but this seemed to have ginned up a few more stories uh, than, than usual. Some storylines that went like this. Um, are scientists baffled by radio signals from deep space? That was one. Are technologically advanced aliens trying to contact Earth? That was another. Do scientists finally have proof that extraterrestrial life really exists? And this is my favorite. Could it be E.T. is really phoning home? Well, the answer to all those questions is no. Um, no. Actually, an international team of astronomers got together and looked at the data very, very carefully, and what they discerned is, is that most likely uh, those signals, those pulses from way out there are coming from a young pulsar or a young magnetar. Uh, don't ask me what that is. I'm just reading you what, what they said. Um, that's what that's clearly these these folks that know what they're talking about when they're looking at these things are understanding that this is a natural phenomenon, and no matter how disappointing it may be to to some in in some circles, uh, this these signals these pulses are are not coming from an intelligent source. It's a natural phenomenon, and it ought not to be treated in any other way. I'll loop back to that in a second. Our text. Okay, so we read chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Uh, that was uh, an account of the calling of Matthew. Then we pressed on, verses 14 through 17, and that is a question that comes up about fasting. Or if I can put it this way, the first text is a question coming from the Pharisees. The next text, the one where we're honing in on today, is a question from disciples of John the Baptist. And in both cases, what we're seeing is this, this crucial issue that's, that, that needs to be stressed and cannot be stressed enough, and that is the Christian gospel is unique. It is unique. It stands out among all other faiths, all other religions, all other worldviews, all other philosophies, all other approaches to God. Uh, it absolutely positively stands out. Now, back to radio signals from deep space. Let's assume for a minute that one day our telescopes, our satellites, do in fact pick up something that's not just from a pulsar. It's not just from a magnetar. It's, it's something that clearly bears all the signs uh, of, of intelligent life out there. That would be different. Yeah, that would be different. That would be enough to sit up and take notice. 
um, that would be something that would stand out and would be startlingly new. And that's what you have here with the gospel. Something that stands out and is startlingly new. Jesus, if I can put it this way, brings something new. Some, some, something completely and utterly new, and it ought not to be treated as anything else but that. Now, you, you know, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, how? How, how does it show itself in, as something new, and how might this text speak to that? I'm glad you asked. That's where we're going. Um, the three points that you have there in your outline, it's, it's, it's ways that this newness shows itself, this uniqueness shows itself in the text. And then the first one being that f the, how the gospel fuels an abundant joy. The second thing being how it creates a gaping chasm. I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. And then thirdly, how it demands continual reminders. So it fuels, it creates, and demands. Let's take a look at this uh, as we go. How does the gospel do this? Cert certainly the newness of the gospel fuels an abundant joy, and it comes out in this passage. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 again. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, we need to delve into a little bit of background here, into some uh, cultural practices that were common in every day back then, but not so much uh, for us now. So fasting. Fasting, obviously, uh, no surprise there, entailed an abstention from eating. Right. But in that culture, it oftentimes oft, often uh, included um, a self-humbling coming through time of prayer, coming through an attitude of mourning, uh, coming along with oftentimes the wearing of sackcloth. Now understand that there, therein, as, as Jesus is speaking of fasting, and as the disciples of John the Baptist are speaking of fasting, that is an utter contrast to what we ought to be understanding of a wedding. You know, fasting and wedding, two completely different moods there, okay, and, and context there. So a Jewish wedding in those days was uh, oftentimes an open house celebration that lasted a week, okay? Um, it was a, a joyous occasion, an opportunity to really throw out and extend the, the richest type of hospitality you were capable of, a time of dancing, a time of fun, uh, a, an opportunity to enjoy yourself such that oftentimes the poor in a culture, in a, in a village, would never otherwise have. And by the way, it was all free. It was all paid for by the bridegroom's family. I know, not, not the bride, but in that culture, the bridegroom's family. So that's the context that Jesus is speaking of when he mentions wedding, bridegroom, fasting, that contrast. And by the way, all through the course of the Old Testament, you see this image being used of a wedding and the coming of a bridegroom referring to and as analogous to the coming of the kingdom of God. I don't have time to, to look at all the passages, but I just want to look at two uh, Isaiah 62 would certainly be one where you can see something of that here. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now you, then you, okay, you get a sense of that already. 
then that's one of the major prophets, Isaiah. But if you press into the minor prophets, ones such as like Hosea, uh, skipping over a few pages in the Old Testament to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The prophet writes, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So again, the idea being this wedding, this joyousness, this um, adoration of the bridegroom towards the bride is an image of the, the coming of the kingdom of God. So, okay, the significance of all that, that's the background. The significance of all that in terms of what Jesus is saying and why he's saying what he's saying and how his hearers would have understood this, well, okay, the kingdom, Jesus is saying, he's already said it explicitly, implicitly, at least he's saying it at this point, the kingdom of God has come and I am the king. He is the messianic bridegroom, long awaited. So if, if it's a wedding and the groom has come, this then is no time to mourn but a time to dance. It is no time to fast but a time for feasting. And so the point then being the newness of what Jesus is bringing here fuels abundant joy. Now just a quick aside, is he speaking against fasting? No, no he's not. Uh, just keep in mind, just real quickly uh, here, go back to chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. That's chapters 5, 6, six and 7. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to this. Uh, in one major section in chapter 6, he sets the tone for this in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father and who is in heaven. And then he goes on to unpack that and talks about how it's the, the, what is what it. What is the right attitude, the right heart in giving towards the poor and then praying to the Lord? And then you get to verses 16 through 18 and you have fasting. And this is what Jesus says. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they, will dis for they disfigure their faces, that fasting, their fasting, may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so in his teaching, he's certainly not speaking against fasting. He's not saying um, if you fast. He says when you fast. He is assuming that his followers will, in certain contexts, fast. That's his teaching, and then you look at his practice. Jesus himself fasted. So certainly he's not speaking of this completely, uh, just not ruling this out by, by any stretch. So, okay, that's the first thing I want to say. Just no, he's certainly not speaking against fasting. The, the overall thing that we've got to look at and consider here is that to follow Jesus is to heed a call to joy. That's the main thing here in verses 14 through 15, this, this imagery here of this wedding feast, a call to joy. Not to say we turn a blind eye to the suffering of this world and the reality of the fall and how deep the curse goes, but rather that we would see with eyes of faith the reality of the, the person and work of Jesus in the past, in the present, and in the future. Such that, as we sink our, our hearts into that and begin to live out of that increasingly and embrace that, we then find ourselves, yes, at times weeping, but without needing to despair. Disappointed, yes, with the circumstances and events of our lives, but not utterly disillusioned 
bruised, yes, but not completely broken and undone. Aching, yes, feeling that, but without losing hope. The gospel brings that. It brings that. It fuels and this abundant joy even in this world, even in this life. Jesus brings something that is truly new, fueling and abundant joy. But there's more here. It's so different, this newness of what Jesus brings, that it creates what I'll call a gaping chasm between the old and the new. I'll explain that here in just a minute. Um, but again, some background. Uh, and to, because as you look at verses 16 through and 17, there's some puzzling stuff here, I think, especially for us modern uh, Westerners who are kind of like, you know, they, we've never patched a thing and we have no idea what this business is about wineskins. Um, so we need to kind of think through some of the, the background there. So the first is a patching of cloth, verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So what's going on here? Jesus is speaking very, very simply. If, if you take a new uh, piece of cloth and use it as a patch and try and put it on an old piece of cloth, in turn you're going to make matters worse, the whole worse, in that original, the older uh, garment, fabric, whatever the case may be. We, we, we know that, and he's grabbing hold of that image. The next thing, uh, not just the patching of cloth, but the pouring of wine. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. He's making a similar point here. You can see that in the way he phrases it. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. All right, so what's going on here? Back in those days, you didn't have um, plastic or metal containers to put your fluids in. If you're going to have a thermos, if you're going to have the, modern, the ancient equivalent of a, of a modern bottle, you're going to have to put it in an animal skin, a skin that's going to be treated and, and prepared in such a way that, that you can even pour wine in it. But here's the thing. If those, those skins, over time, with more and more usage, are going to become more hard and more brittle, less and less, I'll, I'll say, elastic, stretchable. So if you pour new wine that is still fermenting into an old wineskin, you know, new wine into, a new, into an old wineskin, it's hard, it's brittle, it's not going anywhere, and then you seal it up, those fermenting gases, those going to be building up of pressure inside there, okay? It's going to cause expansion, and eventually that skin is going to split, and you've got a broken wine skin and wine all over the ground. A lose-lose scenario on both counts. So if you've got new wine, what do you want to pour it into? Class, new wine skin. Very good, you're paying attention. All right, so that's the idea here. If you've got the new wine, you want to pour it into new wine skin. So the significance of all this, what Jesus is saying that he has brought something fundamentally new into mm, time and space, I suppose you could say, the flow of things. What I mean by that, skipping back not just to chapter 6 of Matthew 5, but chapter 5. Chapter 5, and earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the, the beginning paragraphs and what you're seeing there in your English Bible is what we call the Beatitudes, and Jesus sets forward there the marks of what a, his followers look like. It's a fantastic picture. It's just, I don't have time to go there, but that's the Beatitudes. Then from there, in verses 13 through 16, 
He says, okay, and if you, to the extent you live this way, you're going to stand out. You're going to be salt and light in this world. Well, then that then begs the question, and Jesus meets the question, and the question would go like this. Well, then how radical, how new is this teacher and this teaching? What is it that you are bringing? What is it that you are about to tell us? Well, he says, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the law. All the prophecies. Think of the astonishing nature of this statement. And he's, he's not just, it's not just we're saying about him. He's saying it about himself. Now think about how outlandish this is, unless it's true, for him to say this. I am the fulfillment, the embodiment, the completion, the culmination of all the prophets. In me, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies. I am the fulfillment of all the sacrificial system that you have been engaging with in that, that tabernacle and in that temple for centuries. It was all about me preparing the way for me. All of the major historical events in your history, all the major figures that you think of, they were to prepare the way in your minds, in your imagination, setting the tone, setting the pace, setting the place for me to arrive. I am the fulfillment of the law. That's what he's saying. I have come. I am the completion and culmination of it all. And with that, there is no going back. You can't pour, you, can, you can't patch a new patch on the old fabric. You can't pour new wine into an old skin. There's no going back. There's a newness, a newness such that Jesus has brought to the table that creates a gaping chasm between the old and the new. That's what he's saying. Tim Keller is uh, fond of relaying this story to make a similar point. It's actually there in your quotes and notes. I think it's the uh, third one down. Yeah, the third one down. It's from his book, uh, King's Cross. And this is what Keller writes. In a sermon Dick Lucas once preached, he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple. But where do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. You see... These disciples of John the Baptist are coming that day, in essence asking, why don't you do like us? Why don't you do these things like, like we do? Like all other religions do. These things. And the, the reason is, is that Christianity is unlike all the other faiths, all the other approaches to God, all the other approaches to God, all the other religions of the world are fundamentally wired like this, a reaching up to God. 
Whereas Christianity fundamentally is God reaching down to us. I've said this a couple times in the last couple weeks. I'm going to say it one more time. Um, all the other faiths, all the other religions of the world are good advice. Here's what you need to do. Christianity is not good advice, it's good news. It's what God has already done, done for us in Jesus. So in that sense, it's as though when you think about the uniqueness of the gospel, the uniqueness of what Jesus has done and is bringing, the newness of all of that, it's, it's as though with, with all the other world religions, all the other philosophies and, and ways of approaching God, that, that's like um, reaching to heaven, reaching to heaven. And here you have a message in its uniqueness. It's as though it's come down from heaven itself because it has. Um, there's such a stark contrast here, which I think lends at least two points, quick points on that, that score. One is... Maybe, given its uniqueness, given how it stands out, maybe it deserves more of a hearing than you thought. And maybe also that tells us something about what it is that we're hearing and how radically different it really is. What Jesus is bringing is something that's truly new, and it creates, again, a gaping chasm between the old and the new and all the other religions and itself. But lastly, uh, with everything else, okay, fueling an abundant joy, creating this gaping chasm is one last thing. And this one, this third point, is something I've, I've kind of touched on it, teased on it, alluded to it already. Um, it's something of a warning to us, uh, of, a, of a sobering warning to us. Because the newness of what Jesus brings also demands continual reminders. And here I think we need to be clear on the identity of these questioners. Who are these men coming to Jesus that day? Who were they? They are disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 14. And the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now understand, these are not like the Pharisees, overtly hostile to Jesus. At least that's not how they feel about themselves. In fact, they would probably have said, we're rather sympathetic towards Jesus. We've just got, you know, kind of this little area of a beef or a concern or a question or whatever the case may be. But John, I mean, keep in mind, who's John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a God-appointed, well, really, the God-appointed herald of the coming of this messianic bridegroom of Jesus. And he was so committed to that, so bold and courageous in his stance in fulfilling that mission and that task that ultimately he was arrested and locked away. And we know that at this point in the flow of events, he is in prison and he's soon going to be executed. So that's John the Baptist and these are his followers. But it seems that there's trouble because while he's been locked away, they are now beginning to drift, it would seem. They are identifying themselves with the Pharisees, right? Why do we and the Pharisees do this and you don't? So identifying themselves not just in terms of what they're doing and why they're doing it, but now in how they describe themselves. Now that's an indication of trouble, that they would be identifying themselves in that way. 
So it, I think that shifts us from the identity of the questioners to the reason for the question. They've lost, for all practical purposes, they've lost their leader. He's locked away. John the Baptist is off in a, one of Herod's uh, fortresses there in Judea, locked away in a, in a dark place. Um, some commentators even say that kind of, you know, between the lines you can read in, in this text and some of the parallel passages in the other Gospels, an element of jealousy and envy on the part of these men as they come to Jesus that day, something that you do not see in any way with John. John, who earlier said he must, what, increase, that I might decrease. Okay? It seems that they've, they've, they've lost their leader and they've lost their focus. They, they are not only unable to grapple with the, the significance of Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, and ultimately as the, their righteousness before God. But now they're relying on their own righteousness, a self-righteousness, fasting being one. We're doing this. We ought to be doing this. These good things, giving to the poor, the things Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount earlier, giving to the poor, praying to God, fasting, abstaining, all these things. But, and those are good things, right things, but never to be done to curry the approval and favor of God, but out of a response to the approval and, and, and favor of God that we already have because of Christ. So the point being, the lesson in all of this is, the newness of what Jesus brings is so new that it demands continual reminders. Lest we forget, lest we drift, lest we lose our own focus. Stories told of Martin Luther, and I have to admit, I, I don't know the source. I heard the story many years ago. I tried to find it this past week. I can't, so that's my disclosure. But I think it's true. Let's just pretend it is, okay? Um... The story is told of Luther that you know one day he preaches a sermon, and after he's done, after the service, uh, his parishioner, a few of his parishioners come up to him and they say something to this effect: um, "Brother Martin, wonderful message, but and the truth always comes behind the but, um, uh, wonderful message. But we were sort of wondering, why is it that day after day after day, or week after week, week after week after week, we come here and you?" preach the same sort of message about God's grace. And kind of, you don't say this, but there's kind of this sense of, because we were kind of hoping for more, or something else. And, and Luther, uh, in his earthiness, says something of, to the effect in, in response, I preach the same message of the necessity of God's grace week after week, because week after week, I see what you look like when you come into this place. And until I see some change, that's what I'm going to preach. Because that's what you need. And we are no different. Not a one of us. Without any exception whatsoever, every one of us in this room are in desperate, dire need of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. And by the way, through the day daily and, and through the day, seeing the danger, the very real and present danger of slipping back, 
of losing that, uh, uh, this focus and laying hold of God's grace. As an extension of that, laying hold of the means of His grace. The, the means by which He communicates that grace to us and presses it more deeply into our hearts. If I can just kind of step forward and maybe be a little forward here, what that means is, is something like this for you and for me in our day-to-day -day life. In those moments, when you find yourself and I find myself, we find ourselves tempted to think. We would never say these things, of course. But when we think these things, I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't feel like. I'm too busy to pray. I'm, I don't, I'm too tired. I want to sleep in. I don't want to come to the service on Sunday morning. I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of tired of those people in my community group. And I really don't feel like hanging out with them tonight. I promise you, I promise you, 99 times out of 100, when those are the thoughts on your mind and in your heart, those are exactly the times you need to be doing those things. Because this, that's a symptom of what's going on in your heart. Right? The very moment where you don't want to get into the Scriptures, don't want to spend time with the Lord, don't want to spend time with His people, what is that indicative of what's going on in your heart? The desperate need to do all those things. 99 times out of 100. And don't come back and tell me, well, I was the one. <laughs> I know my heart too well, and I think you know something of yours too. Jesus has brought something that's so new, it demands these continual reminders. Now, this past Friday, some of you may know, was a, uh, an ancient Christian holiday, the marking of it, Epiphany. Now, we Westerners uh, don't know much about that. It actually goes way, way back in terms of the traditions involved with all of that. The, the word Epiphany comes from a Greek word, which means manifestation, and it's meant to mark and celebrate the arrival of the Magi. Uh, come to visit uh, Jesus and his parents there in, in Bethlehem. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You really thought about this? But why did the Magi come? I mean, really, what, why? It was a lot of trouble. Why? Well, you know, to some degree we could say because they saw the heavenly signs and they knew something of the ancient prophecies. But we need to, to drill down a little deeper. These men were priest sages in their day. Experts, specialists in astrology, astronomy, divination, magic, medicine, all the faiths of the world. They had studied they had committed their lives to immersing in... They were well-schooled, the, the, the best-schooled in the ancient world of the time. We, most likely they were from Persia. Persia at that time was known for, in that region of the globe, known for its attainments, its intellectual and spiritual religious attainments. So these men, if you will, had seen it all. And humanly speaking, you'd say, they knew it all. And yet... There's something, something about the, these events and the news of these events that got 
their attention. And they were drawn. There was something that triggered something within them. and something that stood out. stood out blazingly so, just as that star did in that night sky. And they were drawn, compelled, and so they went. And in the years ever since, people are still drawn. And they come. What about us? What about you? What about me? Are we hearing the radical newness of what Jesus is bringing? What Jesus is bringing. It ought not to be treated as anything else but that. Something that it really truly fuels an abundant joy. Something that really and truly creates this gaping chasm. And something that really and truly demands continual reminders. It is that new. New in terms of its uniqueness. New in terms of its power. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your servant Paul wrote of this message as a being a stumbling block to the religious and folly, foolishness to the irreligious. We confess right here and right now of a hostility within our own hearts, of a resistance. This is a foreign message to us. It is, is alien. It is otherworldly. It is new. It's new in terms of its, its potential to bring joy. New in terms of its distinction, unlike any other. New in terms of uh, just this resistance. All the others are so easy to embrace. This one, this one, we need these reminders continually so. Oh, we need this though. Oh, more than we know, we ask that you would press this, this the goodness of this news and the news, the reality of it, into our hearts this day, this Sunday after Epiphany. We pray this in your name. Amen.